0: I don't know that I, personally, have lived through a more troubling time. Now, I'm sure there are some here who can remember such past events as the Great Depression. Well maybe a couple of you. World War II, Korean and Vietnam wars sandwiched in between them, the Cuban Missile Crisis, And then, of course, Watergate. I'm just randomly naming events of national, even international, significance and challenge. Many more of us remember the attacks of 9-11 and the war which followed. What to say about COVID-19 and then the most recent election cycle. Most of those things were were in our external threats or challenges. Now, however, the challenge is internal. And it is alarming, discouraging, even depressing. I'm not sure that we have ever been more divided as a nation at least since the Civil War of the 1860s. And while each side portends to have the answers, I will not pretend to have an answer outside the return of the Prince of Peace. We went into an election on Tuesday with strong opinions, that's okay, and excessive vitriol, not okay. Okay. And more people voted than ever before we woke up on wednesday morning with no clear winner for president and that progressed through much of the week switching from one candidate to the other charges and countercharges were lobbed across the political divide that lay between us facebook and Twitter and Instagram became veritable verbal minefields. Enter at your own risk. Protests, riots, looting continued as they have now for months. And so perhaps you are wondering, what now? Will we survive as a nation? It's a good question. Abraham Lincoln wondered the same during that civil war, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent, a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure, can long endure and here we are seven score and 17 years later after the Gettysburg Address interestingly in November of 1863 and the question remains, perhaps more so at this time in our lives than any other, will we long endure? Again, I will not presume to have the answer. There are strong political opinions on each side, even in this room. May I tell you this morning what will endure. The kingdom of God embodied in the church of Jesus Christ built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone will long, indeed, forever endure. And if we lose sight of that truth, then we may well fall into the throes of anxiety and depression. But I would remind you that Jesus said, I will build my church and the very gates of hell will not overcome it. And so... Can I suggest also this morning that through the centuries there have been divisions of infinitely greater importance? Not national, because nations and empires come and go. You know that, don't you? Not national, but spiritual. You see, almost 2,000 years ago, the early church faced significant division within. Would it endure? Oh, the Apostle Paul said it would come in Acts 2. 20 Interestingly, to the elders of the church of Ephesus, don't miss that. To the elders of the church of Ephesus, he said, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, the sheep, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd that means to pastor the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. That is a stunning. Statement. It's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. It declares the deity of Jesus more clearly than anywhere. The church of God which He, that is God, purchased with His own, God's own blood. And it declares the value of the church more strongly than anywhere. So any division in the church, any attacks against the church are of great, dare I say, infinite and eternal significance. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, talking to elders, men will arise, speaking perverse things in order to draw away the the disciples after them. And that's what they wanted to do. And that's exactly what happened in Ephesus and the church and the surrounding areas of Asia Minor, Western Asia Minor. People from within arose, teaching perverse things, seeking to draw away to themselves because it was about them, disciples. The church became divided. Some cast their votes, if you will, and others succumbed altogether. It's interesting to note the seven churches of Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, were likely among these churches in Western Asia Minor. And when that last book of the Bible was written, Jesus commended only two of the seven churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Five were called to wake up, to remember, to repent, and to return to their first love, which they had apparently forsaken. In the midst of that great controversial divide, there was understandably great concern. What will happen to the church of Jesus Christ? Will it long endure? Further, the concerns became personal. As the church was divided, the natural question then became Am I on the right side? There's division. Do I, do I believe that which is truly right? Are those who have seceded, that's what they call them, secessionists, that's interesting. Are those who have seceded, are they right? Am I even a believer, truly a follower of Jesus? And perhaps you have asked yourself that question in the midst of rising opposition against the church, am I really a Christian? How do I know when doubts plague my soul? When more and more are saying to the church, saying to you, you're wrong. You're wrong. Am I right? And so the... Aged apostle, the last living apostle, his name was John, wrote a letter to these people. It was both a polemical and pastoral letter, polemical in that it was a clear defense against these heretical attacks that sought to divide and ultimately destroy the church It's not like today. pastoral as he sought to encourage those believers who remained in the midst of doubt, in the midst of division, to give them assurance. We call that letter First John. I want to say to you, I can think of no better letter for us to study than this one at this moment in our history. Have current events brought you down? I'm not talking necessarily about the results of the election. I'm talking about the division that exists among us. Do you find yourself asking, will this nation long endure? In the rising opposition against the church and the Dare I call it the decline of the church? Will the church long endure? Do you find yourself in the midst of spiritual anxiety and concern? This book is for you. The letter of First John shares the same author as the Gospel of John. And the purpose of the Gospel of John is clearly spelled out in John chapter 20. Therefore, many other signs or or miracles Jesus also performed in the presence of of the disciples, meaning that they were eyewitnesses. They saw what He did, which are not written in this book. I could have written a whole lot more, He said in the verse before, but all the books in the world couldn't contain it all. John only recorded seven miracles of Jesus, but those seven miracles were carefully chosen to prove something what? What? But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. He wrote the gospel so that you could meet Jesus. You find yourself in doubt this morning, you find yourself troubled this morning, go to the gospel of John. That's what it's there for. He wrote it so you could meet Jesus with convincing proofs that He was indeed the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, have life. That is eternal life through Him. That's the gospel. And now John gets to his first letter, perhaps written about 10 years later, maybe 90, 95 A.D. He's, he's, he's an old man, like J.P. said of me, and tells his purpose in chapter five. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Maybe you've read my gospel. Maybe you have believed in Jesus, but now there's the division, there's the rising opposition, and it's causing you some anxiety, and you're wondering, Am I, am I right? These things have I written. those who believe in Jesus so that you may know. That's an important word in this book. So that you may know that you have eternal life. Don't miss it. I wrote the gospel so that you would believe in Jesus as the Christ. I wrote this letter so that you would know that by believing you can be confident right now. You can be confident that you have eternal life. John Stott says he wrote the gospel for unbelievers in order to arouse their faith and the letter for believers in order to deepen your assurance. Do you doubt? Do you wonder? Are you only here because that's what Christians do on Sunday, but you're not sure you are one? Are are there those who have left us and they have? Denying the faith, redefining the faith? Have they caused you to wonder? Are, are, are they right? Have they left you in the depths of doubt and despair? I don't think I've heard the word anxiety more in the last 10 years of my life than in the previous 50 years combined. Do the math. You know how old I am. I hear it all the time. Everybody's anxious. Are you anxious today? My brothers and sisters, this book is for you. It's largely been believed that the Apostle John wrote five New Testament books, the Gospel of John, these three letters which bear his name, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Four of those books are technically anonymous. That is, the author does not identify himself. Interesting to note that of all the New Testament epistles, only these three and Hebrews does not identify the writer. Well, second and third John, he says, I'm the elder. We'll talk about that later. But our author gives enough clues for us to know that it was indeed the Apostle John, the beloved, the beloved apostle, the one that Jesus loved. Apostle John was a Galilean fisherman, brother to James, both James and John, sons of Zebedee and Salome. James and John were together, indeed, as J.P. told us, known as the Sons of Thunder. That title speaks of men with great zeal, passion, even aggression. Read their Facebook page. We see a little of that character coming out in the Gospels. There was a time the disciples were arguing about which one of them was, uh, would be the greatest in the kingdom. I have no doubt that James and John were right in the middle of that heated debate. Why, why do I say that? Because later they had their mother, Salome, approach Jesus and say, grant that my two sons will be allowed to sit on your left hand and on your right hand in the kingdom. Can you believe the audacity of the request? Grant that in the kingdom, as you sit on your throne, that James and John will be there with you bold request Jesus looked at these two he didn't look at her he looked at the two sons of thunder and said are you able to drink the cup I drink of course we can it was the time they were on their way to Jerusalem for Jesus to drink the cup that was not removed they're stopping along the way, so Jesus sent people ahead to prepare for his arrival. One Samaritan city sent word back, you cannot stay here. What did the sons of thunder want to do? They asked Jesus, Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? It does sound like our social media. Jesus, seeing the multitudes, had compassion on them. And John, seeing the multitudes, said, let's nuke them. This was after three years with Jesus. How long have you been with Jesus? It's right before the crucifixion. But after the crucifixion and the resurrection, John's life was forever changed. He went on to write what Martin Luther called God's love letter to the world in the gospel. Can you imagine a Bible without John 3.16? John wrote that. John records the new command that you love one another. In fact, there's a legend which says when John was elderly, old, uh, hardly able to walk, they would carry him to the church in Ephesus. There it is, Ephesus. And whenever he had the energy to address the church, he would always say the same thing, little children, love one another. After several such times, they asked him, why is that all you say? And he said, it is the Lord's command. And if this alone be done, it is enough. Love one another. There is lots of credible evidence that in his later years, John moved to Ephesus. There he wrote these five um, books. Again, while anonymous, there is enough proof from the early church, that is the church fathers, that John indeed did write them. The earliest allusions of this letter are found very early in the second century. That's the early 100s in uh, 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 in Clement of Rome, in his writings and in the Didache, uh, the earliest clear quotes from the letter come from Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. And the er- earliest citing, as, uh, 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 citing John as the author come from Irenaeus and Pap- Papias and Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian and Origen and Eu- Eusebius. And if you need those names for your notes, you can see me afterward. By the way, we're not going to get to a single verse today. We're we'll just doing an introduction. That takes a very special talent. I gave all of those to uh, to you to say there was clear and widespread acceptance of the letters and Johannine. that means John, that that just threw that word in there to impress you, Johannine authorship. Oh, and, and by the way, every early copy of 1 John that we have, every early copy without exception has John's name affixed to the letter, either in the title or in the subscription. No other name. There's also lots of internal evidence, that is, by reading the book itself, that indicates that John wrote it. Why do I say that? When comparing the Gospel of John uh, with, with 1 John, there are undeniable similarities which make it clear that they came from the same pen. I won't take the time this morning to prove that John wrote the Gospel of John. You can listen to my introduction of that Gospel from 2007, looked it up. Here's what we know. When you compare the Gospel of John with 1 John, it is abundantly clear they are the same author, much of the same language, the same syntax, the same concept. Consider some verses for your edification. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then we get to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes and what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Incidentally, this makes abundantly clear that the author of 1 John was an eyewitness which considerably narrows the candidate pool. John chapter 3, this is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. Compare that to 1 John chapter 1. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus uh, uh, cleanses us from all sin. Very similar wording and very similar concept. One more just for good measure, and since it is a major theme in this book, and I'm going to hammer it again and again. John chapter 13, only John said this, at the Last Supper, a new commandment, Jesus said, I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, by your love, for people out there, for one another. First John says that all over the place, chapter two, verse seven, Behold, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you've had from the begin, from the beginning, the old command which we which you've heard. And then throughout the letter he, he talks about the importance of loving one another. He says it finally clearly in chapter three. This is the message which you have heard from the beginning that you should love one and love one another. Again, m- many similar verses and grammar and, and, and concept. Both books, this is very interesting both, and important, both books are filled with contrasting figures like light and darkness and life and death and truth and lies and, and love and hate. And by the way, it is noted by everyone that there is not a third option. No such thing as twilight, as almost being in, You're either in the light or you're in the darkness. You either have life or you remain in death. You are either children of God or children of the devil. You are either of the truth or a liar. You are either in God or you are not. Going back to the purpose of the letter, there are several times that John says something like, I write these things because I won't review all of those, but most agree the primary purpose. Again, chapter 5, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know. I I know, I I know, I, I get, I get the anxiety, I get the angst, I get the doubts, I get the concerns. I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. Pastoral letter of encouragement. I want you to know, you have right now, through the promise of God, eternal life through His Son. Why did they need encouraging? I've already referenced it. There were false teachers. Surprise, surprise. In the church. In the surrounding churches. What is sometimes called the Johannine John's community. They they had gathered, these false teachers had gathered quite the following. And after some time, they appeared to, uh, to have left. Chapter 2, verse 19, a verse we're familiar with. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have no doubt remained with us. But they went out so that it would be known that they all are not of us. We'll talk about that when we get to chapter 2, but we will see. Listen to me very, very carefully. You cannot leave the church without repercussions, can't do it. He loved the church so much, he paid for it with his own blood. But here in their going out, they took several with them. There was division. Division, which caused much angst. It seems they were continuing to try to seduce others to to follow them. And so this becomes a polemical letter as John seeks to expose their false teaching. He calls them false prophets, he calls them deceivers, he calls them liars, and he calls them antichrists. Lots of attempts to try to identify the false teachers in their system. Most often they are identified as, I think rightly, proto or incipient Gnostics. That is pre-Gnostics. I know. I I, I know the history. Full-blown Gnosticism didn't come about until a few decades later. But surely the seeds of their false teaching were already being sown. What is it that Gnostics believed? Well, the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word to know. They they, they thought that they knew. (laughs) They had some special knowledge in which true salvation was really found. And by the way, that was apart from the gospel. They took parts of Judaism and parts of paganism and parts of Christianity and mixed it all together apart from the gospel. Sounds a bit like today. Many even in the church think that they know more. They know more than what the Bible actually says. Just talk to them. They'll give you their opinion and ignore what the Bible says, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's what the Bible says. So as a result of their special knowledge, they looked down on others. They were condescending. They were arrogant. Uh, Looked down on others, even in the church, who were not on the same elite level as them. They were enlightened, and everyone else unenlightened. Third, these Gnostics followed Greek dualism. That is, they thought... Very important. They thought that all matter, everything physical, w- was evil. Our bodies, are, they're just evil. It's only the immaterial, uh, the spiritual, which is good, which led, this Greek dualism led to all kinds of other falsehoods. For example, since matter, the physical, was all evil, how you lived in these physical evil bodies didn't really matter. Right? It doesn't matter if you lived in sin. That's what evil bodies do. As long as spiritually you're good, you're good to go. Live in sin doesn't matter. Sounds an awful lot like today. I'm saved. I can live however I want. Since my sins are forgiven, no, you can't. Further, since matter was evil, since our physical bodies are evil, physical bodies are evil, they argued that Christ could not have come in a physical body. Two primary teachings regarding Jesus in this way, the the, the docetists from the word dikeo, which means to seem, taught that it just seemed like Jesus had a physical body, but, but he didn't. certainly the Christ couldn't have had an evil physical body. Another group called the Cerinthians, not to be confused with the Corinthians, the Cerinthians, led by their founder, Cerinthus, who was a contemporary of John, lived in the area of Ephesus, taught that Jesus was born in the normal way of all people. In other words, he denied the virgin birth. He, he was born through Mary and Joseph, not through the Holy Spirit. He was a good man. He was a moral man. In fact, we could even call him a holy man. But but just a man, that sounds a lot like today. Jesus was a good man. I mean, come on, he turned the world upside down, but he's just a man. At his baptism, the Spirit of God came on him, remember the dove, but he left him before the crucifixion because you can't have God dying on a cross, denies the substitutionary atonement. The story told that one day the Apostle John went to a bathhouse. He didn't have a private bathrooms. They went to a, a, a bathhouse in Ephesus and found that Cerinthus was inside. It is said that John fled, exclaiming, Let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Cerinthus, the enemy of truth, is within. So understand primary teaching of these proto-Gnostics is is this. They were superior to, to other people. Even in the church, they looked down. They didn't love them. They said, since everything physical is evil, we can live in our sin. It's all evil anyway. And third, either Jesus was not fully a man or he wasn't fully the Christ. They denied his humanity or his full deity. That's a problem. Which leads to the purpose of the letter of John, polemical and pastoral. At the same time, John vigorously defends the Christian faith. He encourages us to believe the Christian faith. You you can divide his argument into three main points. Almost done here, three main points, certainly uh, with many sub-points. The points are theological, moral, and relational, and deals definitively with these false Teachers, and so doing, he deals with your doubts that you may be carried in with you this morning and your concerns. Basically, he answers the question How can I know if I'm truly a Christian? Have you ever had that thought cross your mind? How can I really know if I'm a Christian? you must pass these tests again to quote John Stott the gospel contains signs that evoke or produce faith and the letter tests uh, and the letter tests by which to judge that faith here are the tests there is the theological test. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that He came into flesh, and therefore He was both fully human, fully man, and fully God. You've got to believe that. If you just say Jesus wasn't God, He was a good man, but not God, you're not a Christian. As the moral ethical test, you must seek to obey His commands. You cannot continue in sin as a lifestyle as if it doesn't matter. It matters. It matters. Now, he, he will balance that, as we'll see in a couple of weeks. He's, he is going to say, no one should claim to be sinless. That's what these false teachers were doing. They, it didn't matter what they did in their physical bodies. Spiritually, I'm sinless. We should seek to obey Christ's commandments. But when we sin, and we will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And the third is very important for our purposes today, the relational or we could call it the social test. So important for today for those who want to dismiss the credible indeed, uh, the incredible indeed, the indispensable importance of the church. I've said it before, I'm going to hammer this home. I'm so tired of people saying things like I'm spiritual, just not religious. I love Jesus, I just don't like the church. You can't say that. And be a Christian. You, to, you must love the church. You must love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Further, you must prove that by your actions. We will see these truths over and over. You see, it's actually a difficult book to outline. Some suggest there is no outline. They talk about it being kind of a spiral or spherical. I, I won't get into all of that. It seems clear that John returns to these themes over and over again. Lots of repetition. You're going to hear me see, saying some of the same things over and over because guess what? John does. I suppose we could just group all of these verses together thematically. But, but then we would miss the creative beauty and the intentional redundancy of the text. We need these truths and we need to hear them over and over. As one author wrote, John's pattern of thinking does not involve sequential logic that will bug some of you in the manner of conventional arguments so so much as the literary equivalent of musical variations on a theme. A constant circling around the basic issue, coming at it from a variety of angles and developing now this aspect, now that aspect, balancing one statement with another to clarify what is and is not entailed, returning to a point already made so that it may be seen afresh in the light of what has been said subsequently. He's just going to take us back to this truth over and over from different vantage points. I think we'll get it by the end. Out of time, but I am so excited to study this book with you, I believe it is perfect for this moment of our history. Are you anxious, discouraged, doubting? You've come to the right place. My desire is that we will grow in our understanding of our Savior's greatness and His great salvation. Pastor Kent Hughes said of the Gospel of John, not not the letter, but the Gospel of John, the serious student will find that each time he returns to the Gospel, Christ will be a little bigger. (laughs) That is my desire for us. That as we launch into the study of 1 John, that Christ becomes bigger to us. In this Christological, that means Christ-centered letter, Jesus brings eternal life. He cleanses us from sin. He intercedes before the Father. He died a propitiatory death. He, he confirms true knowledge. He destroys the works of the devil. He teaches the meaning of love, and he gives us the Holy Spirit. Christ is exalted in his books, and I want him together to grow bigger in our hearts. Not unlike Lucy and her experience with the lion Aslan, In C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, she had a conversation with Aslan one day as she gazed into his large, wise, powerful face. It went like this. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. (laughs) That's because you're a little older, little one, answered he. Not because you are, asked Lucy. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger what I want so what we want as we grow in our Christian faith moment by moment day, day by day, year by year not that Jesus changes, he does not he remains the same yesterday, today and forever, but as we grow in grace and truth our concept and understanding of him gets bigger and bigger and better and better and I would suggest to you we're going to do that for all of eternity we will never plumb the depths of our great Savior. We, we will realize more and more how big he really is and how small we really are. That's my hope.